Hey, while the blossom still clings to the vine, I'll taste your strawberries, I'll drink your sweet wine. A million tomorrows may all pass away, ere I forget the joys that we share. I started thinking the other day about what I'd talk about tonight. I uh, figured ahead to where we'd be in the retreat, and I thought I'd probably want to talk about determination, because here we are, and uh, in a sense, the end is in sight, uh, and uh, we have uh, three more whole days of practice ahead, and uh, I wanted to say something that would fire up uh, everyone's uh, perseverance. And uh, I wanted to talk about the quality of determination and tenacity and what is it that fires up our determination? How come we keep on going? All these uh, images of the ever-ready battery ad. And I, I think about it sometimes when the bell rings and from all over people miraculously converge back here. I get such a boost from that. So I was telling somebody recently, we were having a conversation about images that inspire faith. And I said, you know, the sound of the bell at Spirit Rock uh, inspires me because I think about, even if I don't look out, people converging back, coming back again. And I think we come back again out of some, uh, some faith, some conviction that there's uh, a point to what we're doing, that we're going somewhere with this, that, and that it will work, that some place in us deeply believes that it will work for us and we're here. I was especially glad to talk uh, about determination after James talked two nights ago about faith, because I thought about determination being the strength that faith puts into action once we have a sense of it really, we can do this, and then we become determined to do this. There's something to do. I thought about his story about uh, watching his father drive and saying, how will, you ever, how will I ever be able to get from Queens to Brooklyn? And his father said, you can do it. Though. And it was so, lo and behold, uh, that someone tells us, look, this is a doable thing. That's, I think, why we do Dharma talks, because we tell the stories again and again of this is a feasible task there is uh, uh, the possibility of peace. And then uh, last night, particularly, when um, Guy was talking about the experience of the unborn, the unconditioned, the other shore, Nibbana, peace, God, the ground of being. And I looked out at all of you, and uh, I was listening to him saying, you know, you don't have to get this with your intellect. You don't even have to listen to the words. And don't worry about whether you get it or not. Just sit there. And I was looking it out at everybody. So mostly everybody had a huge smile. And I thought to myself, everybody really knows that there is that place of peace. And that we really don't have to get it intellectually. We just have to have someone say the words that remind us that we already know that place, and it contacts that place in us. 
And we all sit there quite happily. And This morning when I listened to the questions that people asked, I thought when we have the direct transmission of the truth and we just enjoy it, it's just fine. I had been thinking all day about his uh, uh, gesturing about and sit in the great space of awareness and here comes a thought and here comes a feeling and here comes an emotion and here comes an image just up and up and up and we just all sit there and have that experience and then we start to think about it and uh, then we start to think about well maybe I can have that experience here on retreat but remember the questions this morning how will I do this in the marketplace surely I'm not going to be able to see independent arisings and passings away how will I be able to see that uh, awareness is, has really the quality of vast spaciousness? Will I see it outside of here? Is this the parking lot and not the freeway and can you only see it in the parking lot and not on the freeway? And Guy's response to the question, which was really very, very important, so that's where I want to start is it's not about seeing arisings and passings away. It's not about seeing that they arise and that, that, that arisings, and, arisings happen in the space of great mind. It's not even about continual mindfulness. It's about liberation. It's about non-clinging. It's about not getting caught about the mind not tying itself in knots. The mind tying itself in knots is a habit. And changing the habit is helped by seeing and it's helped by insight. But essentially, it's changing a habit of mind. That habit of not clinging. I thought I'd tell you a story. Um, my, uh, my grandson, Colin, uh, whom you saw the other day, he was here for Thanksgiving lunch. Um, when he was in the sixth grade, which is now two years ago, I was invited to come and uh, teach. And he it goes to one of the schools here in Marin County, and they had just finished a social studies unit on uh, India. So they had studied about the Buddha, and uh, Colin has a grandmother who could come and do show and tell, so they invited me. <laughs> and uh, I was very eager to present mindfulness and meditation, particularly in a very normal and regular way. First of all, because I think that mindfulness is very normal and regular. And also because I'm Colin's grandmother and I didn't, I wanted to look regular and normal. <laughs> so. So I talked about the values of paying attention, and I talked about functionally. I said, look how wonderful it would be if you, if, when you pay attention, I said, isn't it that your schoolwork goes better because you don't miss things and you know you keep up and you hear the lessons and you remember to do your homework. So we talked about all the ways that paying attention is really functional in school and how there can be a lot of activity going on in the classroom, and if you're paying attention, you can get your work done in spite of what's going on. And uh, I said, and what's more, in addition to that, you make really good choices about what to do with your time and with your energy. 
And I said, really, what we do when we pay attention is we make wise choices. Who here knows what wise is? Everybody raising their hand. And someone said, uh, well, my grandfather um, wasn't very wise. He, he kept on smoking cigarettes after he knew that cigarettes were bad for him and he got sick. That wasn't wise. And everybody had their hand up. They had people who were wise and people who weren't wise. And the, I was really pleased with how the discussion was going. If you pay attention, you make wise decisions. And then one boy raised his hand and he said, um, I heard that if you meditated, you could learn how to read minds and you would know what people were thinking right now and you could tell their past and maybe we could tell their future. <laughs> Is that true? So I said, well, some people, in fact, when they meditate, develop a certain skill where they actually, in fact, ha have a sense of what people are thinking in some people actually can tell things about people's past and sometimes amazingly people know the future but that's not the point of mindfulness mindfulness is actually about paying attention and making wise decisions i get myself back on course <laughs> and we continue from there and i two sentences into the continuing discussion and he's got his hand up again <laughs> and he said um and uh, in our textbook, in, in our book that we've been reading about India, it showed people uh, lying on beds of nails <laughs> and uh, walking on hot coals, so, and that they meditated and then they could do that. Is that true? <laughs> so I said, well, in fact, some people, <laughs> when they, uh, they really meditate a lot and they can really concentrate a lot, they don't feel pain sometimes in the same way that we do, and they can do these amazing things like lie on nails, or walk on coals, as a way of proving how concentrated they are. So it's a way of showing that they can still their mind so much that they don't feel pain. But the point <laughs> of mindfulness is paying attention so that we make wise decisions. I poor John, and he's got his hand up again. And he said, uh, Colin said <laughs> that you met a woman once who uh, was such a good meditator that she could walk through walls. <laughs> was that true? So I said, well, yes, it was true. In fact, uh, there uh, was a woman, she's not living anymore, who was the teacher of some of my teachers. She was a Bengali woman. She lived in Calcutta. Um, did you meet her? I did. Uh, my teachers brought her to America at one point and brought her to various cities through the country, uh, teach her on tour in a way. And uh, she taught. She actually lived at my house for a week. It was a wonderful time. And uh, so they brought her to meet their students here in America. And he, and he said, uh, did you see her walk through walls? I said, well, I didn't. Uh, do you know she did? Well, my teacher said she did, so I always assumed if they said she did, then she did. But you didn't see her walk through walls, did you? <laughs> I said I didn't. 
He said, how did she do it? <laughs> I said, well, I'm not sure, but what my teacher said was that she could meditate so well that all of her molecules dissolved and that they would pass through the wall and then they would reconstitute on the other side of the wall. I looked 26 people, six graders, all of them, perfectly reasonable to them. So I continued on with what I really wanted to teach. And I, we spent 90 minutes together. We spent an hour and a half. We had a wonderful time. I had them stand up. I had them do moving meditation, just as you do in the walking meditation and in the yoga. We did some yoga postures. We did some walking. We did breathing, hands on the belly, hands on the chest. Did all kinds of breathing. I had a good time with them. Two days later, I got a package of letters, as you sometimes you do when you visit a classroom. They all write thank you letters. So I get a package with 26 thank you letters. 25 of them begin, Dear Sylvia. One of them begins, Dear Grandma. And they all say the same thing. They, they're very appreciative. Thank you so much for coming to our class. Really enjoyed your visit. I like when we moved. I like when we stood up and did the walking meditation. I like what you showed about the breathing. I like what you told about the Buddha. Everybody very appreciative. One letter. <laughs> Dear Sylvia, the same thing. I enjoyed very much. Thank you very much for coming. He said, but I've been thinking. I've been thinking about that woman uh, who could walk through the wall. And he said, I've been thinking, what if while she was in the middle of passing through the wall, <laughs> she got distracted. <laughs> Would she get stuck in the wall forever? <laughs> Yours truly, Robert. So I think it's a great letter. I loved it. First of all, I thought his determination, his tenacity was wonderful. You know, I, I really, he didn't get it and he was about to get it from the beginning. Really, I admired his determination. I also admired that he asked. My teacher said she walked through walls. I said, fine, walk through walls. I never asked about how did she do it or why did she do it. We have doors. I didn't ask anything. Why is that a skill? So I admired that he asked. I admired that he was determined. And I also thought a lot about which he gets stuck forever because <laughs> truly I thought to myself I am continually getting stuck in walls I get stuck in walls of anger and resentment and greed I get stuck in walls that feel as solid as walls I bump into them every day just as part of my day I'm continually getting stuck by walls that I construct with habits of my mind, which remain solid as long as I keep building them. 
And as soon as I stop the habit of building, the walls become transparent, they fall away, they disappear, they're not really there, I can pass through them. I really think that's the meaning of non-clinging. I think it's the purpose of our practice. I think it's a very good story about liberation. We have the possibility, if we look at the habits of our mind and the way that they catch us again and again and again, and we keep them on again and again, to deconstruct the habits, change our minds, and be free. I think that's what we're doing here. One other boy asked a question. That I'll tell you his question. I'll tell you that it took me until quite recently to be absolutely sure that I knew the answer to his question. And I'll let you think about it until the end, then I'll tell you what at least my current working answer to the question is. He said, he said, I'm very interested in what you're saying about paying attention, he said, because I have trouble sometimes in school paying attention, he said, but the trouble is when I'm not paying attention, I don't know that I'm not paying attention. How do you know that you're not paying attention when you're not paying attention? <laughs> you can think about how do you know. I think we're one habit away from freedom. And the habit is the habit of struggling. Last night, I, I liked that image so much when Guy was talking about sitting back and seeing this display of experiences. Really, if you pay close enough attention, display of discrete experiences, this one and then this one and this one and this one and this one, that we miraculously string together and come out with a story of life. String of experiences that is just fine, actually amazing, until we reach out and try to grab onto one of them. It's like the movie is going along, we could be just interested in the movie. It's an amazing movie, this movie. Or we could attempt to grab it. It's really like grabbing smoke or pushing away ghosts. It's just struggle. There's no one who ties the mind into knots. The mind ties itself into knots with those habits. For a while I was saying we, we have the habit of struggling and we could have instead the habit of surrender. I rather like that word, but it's problematic sometimes for people. It comes too close to capitulate. It doesn't feel that way to me. But I, I'm just as happy with calling it the habit of gracious accommodation, the habit of making space. Okay. Doesn't mean I like it. Certainly doesn't mean I'm not going to do something in response to it. It's not the response of passivity. You know, I remembered a story today when I was thinking about what I was going to talk about. I haven't thought about this in 25 years. It happened really on the first long retreat I was ever on. And I, I sometimes have a feeling this is probably not true because it's such a minor event. But I think to myself sometimes, it's certainly one of the factors of my getting interested in this practice. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if this were 
if the key reason or the initial reason for my starting this practice diligently was um, as small a thing as a managerial problem that probably had to do with non-functioning plumbing or groceries that didn't come. Here's the story. I was on a retreat in Toledo, Washington, and uh, very uncomfortable. I really didn't know what I was doing. I was bewildered, and my body was hurting me a lot. And, uh, but I was sitting and walking and sitting and walking and sitting and walking, struggling. And at the end of a particular sitting, bell rang, and I thought, ah. Oh. And I slowly got up because my knees were very pained. Got up very slowly. As I was getting up, I noticed that the manager of that retreat was coming in the door, clearly on on her way to talk to the teacher who had been leading that sitting. And um, so the manager is coming to talk to the teacher and talk, talking to the teacher with some urgency and gesturing and can't hear what they're saying. But it's probably something wasn't working. The grocery truck hadn't come or the plumbing wasn't working or some managerial problem that comes up in the course of a day. But I could see from the furrowed brow and kind of the urgency of the talking that something wasn't working. And here was the teacher listening. And uh, I was beginning to walk out at that point. And I passed them by just at the point where the teacher was responding to whatever it was was the problem. And I only heard the sentence of response. Teacher said, you know, I'm not into hassling. It was like a huge transmission to me (laughs) that that was a possible response in life that you could say about something, you know what? I'm not into hustling. That it was clear to me that it wasn't an indifferent answer, that the problem, whatever it was, was going to get taken care of, and whatever needed to be done would get done. But that hustling was extra. That was so inspiring to me. It was as if no one had ever suggested to me that life was not a contest, wasn't a test where I was a combatant or a Um, contestant and that I had to win or do well or triumph over situations. And in fact, when I remembered it today, I realized that I didn't understand it nearly as well as I think I do now. It was a very wonderful transmission at the time. It inspired me. But I think it just sounded to me at the time that a less stressful life was a possibility. Like, I'm not into hassling, is really like advice that you might give to somebody if they needed to take a stress reduction course, or look, relax a little bit, don't take it so hard, give yourself a break. There are all kinds of comforting things that you could say to people. Things could be worse, think about that. They're helpful (laughs) things. They're not really liberating advice. They probably advice for good living. Probably could read it in health magazines. Really, hassling sets up a hassler and a person who's in a contest. Sets up a sense of a separate self. Sets up a condition of alienation. It sets up really the condition. It continues the condition of suffering 
that exists every time that we feel there's an I who is in trouble, who needs to do something, who has to succeed, who has to do it better, who might get it wrong. That sense of a separate self, the sense of a player who's the hero or the victim in the story is really the piece that if we see clearly is really a key to ending that habit of struggle. It doesn't make us passive, doesn't make us non-doers. It just ends. I can't say that yet because it hasn't ended for me. It ameliorates, it mitigates, makes it less the habit of suffering. Less is good. What it does, that habit of struggle, is it sets up those same walls that we either get stuck in or can't see over. Really what I think we're trying to do is to see over those walls or through the walls that the point of practice is really to see what's true and to see it in a way that really allows us to respond with the fullness of our being. I recently read uh, the first line, looked again at the first line of one of the recent Dalai Lama books. I can't remember which one, which one it was. But the first sentence of the book was this. It said, uh, the purpose of life is. So, imagine the next word was, the purpose of life is. It is happiness. It is. I was surprised. I thought, this is the Dalai Lama, was going to say the purpose of life is to serve. The purpose of life is to make yourself available purpose of life is to work on behalf of all beings. It says the purpose of life is happiness. I think it's the same, actually. I think it's the same. There was an installation ceremony at the Zen Center recently, and uh, one of the students asked uh, the abbot, how shall I serve? And the abbot said, take care of yourself. And the student asked, how should I take care of yourself? And the abbot answered, by serving others. Well, I read that, you know, I read it in an article and I thought, well, that's very Zen. They say these enigmatic things. And you read it and you think, what on earth? But in fact, <laughs> in fact, though, it's really true that hidden in that is you take care of yourself when you serve others because your ability to serve others depends on your having forgotten a sense of separateness, forgotten a separate eye that has, needs to be tended to. It means that you can look out and see what's going on out there and respond it means that you're not alienated. It means that you're not alone. It means there's no one who's imperiled ever. No one that needs to be frightened or forgiven. 
And I think about uh, that, the, that, that answer about the purpose of life is happiness. I think about the purpose of life, this may be another way to say it, I think the purpose of life is falling in love. When you fall in love, you look out. You, or your heart moves in response to someone. You forget your own self. And I think there are two ways that we fall in love. We fall in love How to say this? I think we look out and we see in a heartbreaking way the condition of human beings and in a heart-uplifting way the condition of human beings. We see suffering and we see how amazing this whole thing is, this whole enterprise of being and life. And somehow the two of them together balance each other. We become in love with our own good response. We become servers out of that loving. Let me think of a way to give an example of that. I think it's really hard to look out in the world and see how much suffering there is. We sit here and it's so quiet and it's so lovely. And out in the world, as always, Wars are happening. People are doing terrible things to each other. Half the world doesn't go to sleep having eaten enough. More than that amount of the world doesn't have safe shelter to sleep in. It's very hard to be alive to begin with because of the condition of change and the fact that we'll be separated from everything and everyone we love, and they from us. On top of that, we make it harder with habits of greed and hatred and delusion. It's very hard to look at that. When we practice karuna meditation here, we practice compassion meditation, we do balancing of the mind beforehand. We remind ourselves that things come and go, things change, We remind ourselves so that we'll be able to open our hearts to the suffering of the world, be able to look at it clearly, not flinch. I think when we see it clearly, it pulls us out of ourselves. I went to see Chagdad Rinpoche once. He's a Tibetan teacher, well known for, as Tibetan teachers often are, for uh, understanding interesting and mysterious energies in the body. There was a period of time in my own practice that um, I I was experiencing some very strong and uh, confusing sometimes energies in my body carried on over a long period of time. It characterizes the practice of some people here. It just happens to some people and not other people. It's not particularly a sign of wisdom. It's a sign of it's a sign of a certain level of concentration. Not necessarily a sign of wisdom.
And I went to see Chagdur Rinpoche for some advice that he might give me, and I told him the story of what was happening with me. And uh, I explained it to him very carefully, and he listened very carefully, and then I asked him for some advice, and he got ready to give me advice, and I thought he'd tell me to breathe in a certain way or to try to pay attention in a certain way. And he said, how much compassion practice do you do every day? And uh, I really didn't know what he meant. And um, so I made up an answer. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, uh, I actually gave a textbook answer about, well, in um, Vipassana practice, one pays attention in order to have insight, in order to have wisdom, from which compassion will naturally flow, or something I'm embarrassed to say, but I made up an answer. I got all finished, and he said, uh, no, really, how much compassion practice do you do every day? So I said, I'm not sure what you mean. He said, uh, how much do you go out in the street, really, and just look around? And at the time I thought, ah, oh, maybe he thinks I'm too self-preoccupied, maybe I should be embarrassed, maybe he's... But he looked so kind, you know, I, I didn't take it anywhere as a rebuke. I thought, it, I really felt fine about it. And it's so long ago now, at least ten years, maybe more, that in the ten years I have understood incrementally more, and I do every time I tell a story, what he meant. On every level, that story has continued to grow for me. But one of the levels is when you look out at other people, you take attention away from your situation. It just gets milder, whatever it is. The fear about what's happening with me falls away because you're looking at other people get distracted from yourself. The story of, oh, I'm going to have these energies forever. They'll never go away. I'll always be peculiar. I'll shake in public places for the rest of my life. What will people think? What was the matter with my teachers? Why did they teach me this? This is not helping me any. I should have been in another kind of practice. Those are all, they're stories. You stop telling the story when you look out and you see really what's happening. And you get heartbroken. When you're heartbroken, your goodness comes out. Your goodness comes out, you feel better. Was, actually, I understand it better in that last sentence that I told you than I have probably in all those years. And the other thing is, when you pay attention, you look around outside of you with no walls and you're not stuck. You see the pain in the world. You feel the response of the heart. You also see how amazing the world is. See how amazing it is that life happens, you know. From breath to breath, we stay alive. That's so amazing. You know, we said people, the breath is boring. The breath is amazing. From one breath to the next, we stay alive. If we didn't breathe for a minute, we wouldn't be here. It would get tremendously interesting if we couldn't breathe for a minute. Each breath is one breath to the next. You think about this organism. It falls out of somebody else and it walks around on its own feet for a certain number of years dependent on its breath. Breath to breath, dependent on its breath, dependent on its Krebs cycle, dependent on the heart beating, 
and firing at a certain time. It's really a miracle when you think about it. If you think about it, that's a miracle. And people are really miraculous. They do terrible things with greed, hatred, and delusion, but they do amazing things also. They invent and they create. I heard a, a number of stories since um, since Thanksgiving. People have been telling me stories about their grandfather uh, because I told grandfather stories, and I'm very happy to have them. I wish I could tell all the grandfather stories that people told me. I tell you just one because I can only do one. It, uh, but uh, my friend Jane. Uh, I've known James and Jane for a long time now, and Adam, friend Jane at lunchtime on Thursday, uh, was telling about her grandfather. And I tell you only the barest pieces of the story, but her grandfather was a Jew born in Germany whose mother died right soon after his birth. And he had several numbers of siblings, and his father was a merchant seaman. So his father was gone, his mother was dead. His siblings got raised by various parts of the family, cousins and uncles and aunts. And he grew up and uh, uh, was very bright, went to gymnasium in uh, Germany, was very good at languages, learned many languages. And then the circumstances changed as a young adult, and it wasn't the right thing for him to stay in Germany at that time. And so he moved to uh, England and uh, thought he would teach, but he had such a heavy accent, uh, German accent, that uh, he ended up teaching in a school for the deaf, because that worked. And as Jane told the story, I began to think, I'm going to tell the story when I talk about determination, because determination was the hallmark of uh, Jane's grandfather's life. So he, here he is in this new country, with uh, a certain number of really workable skills, but he figures out the skill that will work and he teaches the deaf. He meets a person who invites him to come and teach in the United States, but circumstances didn't work out right for him to go right at that time, so he went to Canada, taught in Canada for a while, and then the circumstances changed and he got a certain job offer in the United States and he came to the United States and began to teach, still teaching for the deaf, met a woman who was a teacher of the deaf and married her. A whole different family background from his, they marry, and they begin to uh, together be leading, starting, founding schools for the deaf. They have a child who turns out to be Jane's father. His last name was Brill. What was his first name? Richard. Richard Brill. Richard Brill grew up in a household of teachers of the deaf um, and also learned how to do that, also became very interested in uh, special education and is really the pioneer of special education um, techniques, schools, programs for um, spe people with special needs. His daughter, Jane Brill, became a uh, special ed teacher and was teaching in specially difficult circumstances. Learned to be a teacher taught in specially difficult circumstances. Married James Barras. Their child, Adam, is Adam because 
of the grandfather's family having been dispersed in Germany and for him having made a decision this will work there and this will work there and this will work there and this will work there. And I listened to the story, I thought, I wonder if I'll tell this as a determination story or whether I'll tell it as a karma story. Because at any point in that whole story, had one thing been different, then Adam wouldn't be Adam. If he'd gone to America first and not to Canada, he might have taught in a different school and not in the school where he would have met the mother of Jane, uh, the mother of Richard Brill, who became the mother of Jane. There are moments when people tell me their story, so I went here, and then I needed to go there, and then I needed to go there, and then this wouldn't work, so I did that. Oh, I left out a piece of the story. At one point, uh, when teaching in the School for the Deaf didn't work out anymore, they needed to teach other things in order to support themselves in addition to. And he was a very uh, uh, skilled uh, gambler. He played cards really well the father of Richard Brill, so they began teaching bridge at Princeton. Uh, they, they just taught whatever. The reason I wanted to tell you the story, I thought about it since Thursday until today, is first I said it was a determination story. He didn't quit. He was tenacious. It's a karma story. It's awesome. You never know. If you turn right instead of left, the whole rest of your life changes. If you get on this plane and not that plane, the whole rest of your life changes. I really do know people who I ask, how did you meet your partner in life? And they say, well, I missed my plane, and then I took the next plane. You don't know from one moment to the next. It's so amazing when you step back from your life, instead of being stuck in it, you look at it. You never know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. The father of Richard Brill's story is a good story because when you start to hear it, you think, oh dear, his mother died. It's a sad thing. His mother died, he needed to be resourceful, and he did this and this and this and this and this. We don't know what's good or what's bad. We don't know anything. It's awesome. So then I thought, tell you a determination story. Then I thought it'd be a karma story. Then I thought, actually, I wanted to tell it as a resourcefulness story, because all of you are being very resourceful in your practice, and I really wanted to applaud you, the people that I've talked to on... Uh, in interviews are, and so I suppose you all are, because everybody's doing really wonderfully well. And we're in that part of the practice where it begins really to unfold and begin to see the dividends of having been here for a week. And um, as I listen to people tell me what's happening for them, and I say, that's really great, that's wonderful, I'm so pleased. And then people tell me their secret. They say, you know, that instruction that you gave me, it didn't work. So I made up another instruction that did work. And that's really, I heard that from enough people to share it with you. <laughs> to tell you that I'm so happy when you do that. Because it lets me know that you know where you're going. And you know what works and what doesn't work. I don't know what's working with you. All I know is how to listen. Now, I know all the standard things that if somebody says this, I could say do a little that. And if they say that, I could say do a little this. I do know that. But I don't know if that will open up your understanding for you. I think that you know what's working to open your understanding. And I think there's a tremendous level of spiritual maturity happening here. Everybody knows where they're going. 
there's a um, an image that I, that I had with me for some years now. I teach a lot on the East Coast in the retreat center in the Catskill Mountains. And uh, I uh, often have taught there in uh, the fall of the year, in October. And uh, it's the season of the migration of the geese. And uh, great flocks of geese are flying south. And uh, they honk, so you can know that they're up there. And you look up and you see a whole flock of geese. And it's really a wonderful, it looks like a squadron. They're just so beautiful all flying. And they turn all at the same moment. You look, you say, who's in charge of this? It's synchronized flying, you know. And someone must give the instruction, turn this way, turn this way, because they all turn at the same time. And then they turn the other way and they turn back and they're flying south for the winter. And then all of a sudden they'll turn west for a while. And then they'll turn back or then they'll turn east. And sometimes they even turn and they fly backwards. They're flying north. And I think to myself, I'm watching and I'm thinking, no, south, south. <laughs> then I think, the geese know where they're going. I do not have to tell them where they're going. They're going to get there by themselves. They're going to fly. They have an internal mechanism, just as you do, that lets them know where they're going and where they're supposed to go. They know when they're right. And they fix themselves when they don't. You do too. We hold the space for you. That's really the secret. And it's a little bit this way and a little bit that way and a little bit north and a little bit east and a little bit west. But we fix it and we go forward. Because when I looked out last night and I looked again this morning, everybody seemed with a big smile on their face. I really know that everybody knows how it feels to feel free liberated, not stuck in any kind of wall of story. I think to myself, if I could tell an instruction for uh, this practice, and someone said, uh, um, can you tell the whole instructions for this practice in one sentence? Because here we are every morning saying we're going to elaborate the instructions and we elaborate. I think the whole instruction I would give is um, try to be as still as you can and don't tell yourself stories. Really, the mind settles down all by itself. Get to see where, what we need to see just by itself. Get to see those things. You get to see the suffering in the world, which is hard to see. Get to see the beauty of the world, the inventiveness of the world, the creativeness of people. This doesn't work, I'll figure out something else. This doesn't work, I'll figure out something else. And the goodness of people. They're suffering, so I'll respond to it. I thought I'd read you a poem. A friend of mine sent me a poem by Theodore Rothke. I think it has to do with how hard it is to keep awake and the kind of determined tenacity. Keep on looking, keep on trying, keep on readjusting, try something else. Not pushing, not striving, just slowly, slowly, 
expecting. Finding out what works and what doesn't work. I wake to sleep and take my waking slow. I feel my fate in what I cannot fear. I learn by going where I have to go. We think by feeling. What is there to know? I hear my being dance from ear to ear. I wake to sleep and take my waking slow. Of those so close beside me, which are you? God bless the ground. I shall walk softly there and learn by going where I have to go. Light takes the trees, but who can tell us how? The lowly worm climbs up a winding stair. I wake to sleep and take my waking slow. Great nature has another thing to do to you and me. So take the lively air and lovely. Learn by going where to go. This shaking keeps me steady. I should know. What falls away is always and is near. I wake to sleep and take my waking slow. I learn by going where I have to go. So have you thought about the answer to that child's question? How do you know? How do you know if you're paying attention when you're paying attention? This is how I know. I know it if I know I'm awake, paying enough attention, if I have fallen in love with the world again and fallen in love with life again, fallen in love with goodness, my own included, fallen in love enough to care. I'm dispirited. I could pay a little bit more careful attention. I could take the next breath as carefully as I can. I could take the next step without a story. I could let go of the story of despair. I could let go of all the stories. Take the next breath. Look around at people. I think this is amazing. Not what's happening, but that it's happening. And that we care about it, all of us. I said before it was amazing that Krebs cycle works and that the hearts of the kidneys work and the heart works. We can locomote. But we can love, that's the most amazing thing of all. Whatever the shape of the kidneys and the heart can love and appreciate, even celebrate. From the Native American tradition, this is Black Elk. While I stood there, I saw more than I can tell, and I understood more than I saw. For I was seeing in a sacred manner the shapes of all things in the spirit, and the shape of all shapes 
as they must live together like one being. And I saw that it was holy. So we'll sit. I saw the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. And I saw that it was holy. Thank you very much. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock on November 26, 2001. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.